So I encourage you to come to that if you can. Uh, God really moves every year and, and lives are changed. Tom, um, who was with uh, Pat and Simon, um, wasn't really a Christian basically before this August and God met him at MLG at the conference and his life has been completely and utterly changed ever since then. So I really encourage you, if you even if you, you can't come, bring other people who are uh, maybe kind of on the fringe or people that are not even Christians because God can do amazing things. So um, anyway... That's my kind of hello from MLG bit over. Um, I thought I'd uh, share with you, it's nice to be back here again. Can I just say, it's a bit like buses. I haven't been here for ages and then I'm here twice in about two, three weeks. Um, so it's really nice to be with you. Um, and this morning I really believe God has given me something to share with you. Um, like most sermons that I preach, they tend to come from my own experience um, and what the Lord has been teaching me. And um, <clears throat> I really felt God confirm this several times over this word. Um, and so I trust this morning that it will be something that will speak and resonate with some people here this morning. And I'd like to speak on, uh, this is my title. For once, I've managed to get a catchy title. Normally, I'm always struggling to get a decent title. Um, and this, this week's title is The Subtle Sin of self-pity. The subtle sin of self-pity. Three S's. I was very proud of myself. Yeah. Now I want to talk about the sin of self-pity and, and I'll tell you why that it's so personal is because I would say that this is probably the biggest, one of the biggest failings that I have in my own life. I just want to put that out there right at the beginning, right? I'm not standing here as someone that just never struggles with this. This is something that I struggle with. And it's through this struggle that I believe that the Lord has revealed things to me that hopefully I can share with you this morning. So I'm going to start by uh, reading, and if you can turn with me, it would be great, uh, to Psalm 73, which is um, a psalm of Asaph. So if you've got that, it'd be great, because I'm going to be working through that and talking through uh, different aspects of this sermon as we go along. Pat, do you mind getting me a glass of water? So Psalm 73 says this, and I'll be honest, and normally I, I quote from the ESV, but I've actually picked the NLT today, because I just, I found it, the translation was nice and easy to understand, as it's kind of, I'm going to talk about it more from a story perspective. Um, so... If you're reading from a different version, that's fine, but just I'm reading from the NLT. So it says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have any troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. They scoff and speak only evil. In their pride they seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens and their words strut throughout the earth. And so the people are dismayed and confused, drinking in all their words. What does God know, they ask? Does the Most High even know what's happening? Look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. If I had really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper. 
but it was a difficult, but what a difficult task it is. Then, then, then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and finally I understood the destiny of the wicked. Truly you put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. In an instant they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. When you arise, O Lord, you will laugh at their silly ideas, as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. Then I realised that my heart was bitter. I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Those who desert him will perish, for you destroy those who abandon you. But as for me, how good it is to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter, and I will tell everyone the wonderful things you do. So I want to look at this psalm, and I want to kind of uh, break it apart into chunks, because it tells a story of this, this uh, guy, I think he was a king, maybe he wasn't, uh, um, Asaph. Um, and it tells of his story about how he goes through this process of essentially wallowing in self-pity, losing his way, and then coming back to God and realising what a fool he's been. So let's look, shall we, at verse 3. It says, I envied the proud. When I saw them prosper, despite their wickedness, they seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong, they don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. He was looking at the wicked, this guy Asaf, and he was saying, it's not fair. It's not fair. Everybody else, they don't follow God and life is easy for them. And you know, it's very easy for us, isn't it, to get into this mentality of self-pity. Of always looking for a reason why somebody else is better off than we are. Why, if, the, if our situation was just a little bit different, that maybe everything would be different. In my life, I would be happier and I'd enjoy things. Now, for those of us that, that don't, I mean, I obviously don't come here every week, but I'd imagine that cycling is a regular topic of conversation, much to the frustration of many of you in this room that don't cycle. Right? But Pat decided that he was going to create an incredibly complex points table, which Mark took great delight in turning into the most complicated spreadsheet you've ever seen. Right? Okay. Now, it doesn't matter when as soon as you create a system for competition, somebody starts to complain. And this week, he's not here, but Terry. Terry loved to complain and, and say it wasn't fair because the way the point system is structured favours those people that don't commute or favours those people that do commute. Yeah, because if you commute, you get more miles every day and you haven't got to go do extra things, but then you've got to go through London, so your average speed is lower. Okay, and we always... Esther's looking and going, oh, what? Oh, he's my baby. <laughs> Esther will stick up for Terry. But the point is, is that you, whatever, whatever the system, you, always, you can always look at it and say, if, if it was just a bit different, I'd be in a better place. If things were different, my life would be different. I'd be doing better than I am. People would think better of me. And you can see that here. They can see, you can see it's not fair. Why isn't it fair? And Asaph is saying, okay, it's not fair. It's not fair. And, we can, and, and as Asaph did in this psalm, we can find ourselves slipping into a state of self-pity. 
My dad used to have an expression, I don't, you, I don't know if you've ever heard this, plom, who's heard of plom? Poor little old me, right? And my dad, as many of you have known dad for a long time, he's not the most tolerant of, uh, of patheticness, um, particularly from his sons. And you'd come and say, oh, he'd just go, plom, get over it, yeah? Stop being a poor little old me. But yet that's the trouble, isn't it? So often we find ourselves in a place of self-pity. Now I just want to be really clear, self-pity is not being sad. Because we can be sad, we're allowed to be sad. It's not being disappointed when things go wrong. Self-pity is a place where we start to just think about ourselves over and over again and we dwell and we live in this place of feeling sorry for ourselves for a long period of time. We start to live in this state. You know, I was thinking about how I would best illustrate this, and I was thinking about when I'm most vulnerable to self-pity. Now, I have to tra- I'm finding that I'm travelling more and more. I'm often away at weekends, or I'm going away. Now, whenever I go away, right, I'm generally busy, and I leave. My wife's laughing because she knows what's coming, all right? Okay, you, when you go away as, as a husband, and you leave three very noisy little boys and your wife on your own, you go off, and you're slogging out, and you're ministering, and you're preaching, and you're, um, you know, you're dealing with people, and you're having conversations, and you're talking, and you know, you're busy, and you're engaged, and you're working hard, and you've had to drive three or four hours to get there, and three or four hours back, and you walk through the door, and what you, you think, oh... I've been working hard. And you get in and you think to yourself, right, what I need, and this is what would have happened as Pat and Simon returned from India. They would have come and thought, oh, my wife, she's going to know how, how tough it's been for me, how hard I've been working. And what you, what you expect as you walk through the door, you want your wife to be waiting there with a cup of tea. Oh, darling, you've obviously been working hard. You come sit down and your children, who of course are perfectly behaved, come up to you and they'll, hello, daddy, we've missed you. Um, and you're like, yes, and the house is perfectly clean and it's all peaceful. And the children then say, oh, Dad, I'm, it's lovely to see you. I'm going to go to bed now quietly. Like, oh, yes, yes, my lovely children. However, what happens in reality is the complete opposite. Is you've been away two weeks slogging out, working, working hard. Your wife has been pulling her hair out, trying to manage three boys. Okay, it's been chaos. There's mess everywhere because you know where there's at least where there's two of you. There's two of you picking up the mess, right? As opposed to just one of you. And you get in, and your wife is thinking the moment you walk through the door, he's home. It's going to be his job to sort it out. And I don't, know how, I don't know how you guys feel when this happens to you, right? And you get in and you start to think, it's not fair. If she knew how hard I'd worked, right? If she knew how hard I'd worked. She, and you think, it's not fair. No one cares that I've been working hard. No one cares. No one cares about me. I've got to get up and, I, you know, and you feel really sorry for yourself. I don't know. You start to feel, no, she doesn't, you know, maybe she doesn't really love me. Yeah. I don't really think that, but you know, you just sort of, you feel sorry for yourself, don't you? And you start to feel in this place of self-pity. And you start to, over time, you know, and I mean, that's just an example of how self-pity works. And it's a trivial example, but the truth is there's much more serious examples, aren't there? Maybe you were someone who's got a broken heart. That you've given your love to someone. And they rejected you. And they took that love and they stamped all over it. And maybe that happened for you many years ago. And you're still struggling and hurting with that. 
Maybe you were abused and mistreated in childhood. Maybe your life has been this kind of picture that's played out from what happened when you were young, when you were, you know, scarred, maybe physically, but maybe emotionally. You've been rejected and left and you just, and it's, if it's reduced your sense of self-worth and value. Maybe you're somebody that gets easily overlooked. You work really hard. You know, you do, the, you do a good job every single day. And the truth is, the people that should notice, they don't notice. You try really hard and nobody notices. No one cares. And someone else, some new guy rolls in or some new woman rolls in and they're a bit more dynamic and they push themselves forward. And once again, you've been overlooked. And I added one as we were praying in the meeting this morning, Pat. Some of you have failed, you have sinned, you have messed up, you have made a massive error of sin in your life and you cannot get free of the guilt of that sin. And what happens is that you start to allow that to become a place of self-pity. You go there and you say, oh, my heart's been broken, I'm never going to recover. I'm always overlooked. No one cares about me. If only people could see what I was really like. And you start to live in this place of self-pity. And you see it in verse 2. It is a really important thing to address this self-pity because as we see in this verse 2 of this psalm, it says, But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. What Asaph is saying is I almost lost my salvation, I almost lost my way completely with God because I allowed self-pity, because I allowed all of the, the things that were going on to affect me to the point where I started to not trust God anymore. And so we have to get to grips with this. So I want to talk now about just a few things about self-pity. And I've got uh, four points, it should really have been three, but you know. I've got four, about the power of self-pity. And the first is this, self-pity is a subtle sin. It's subtle. Now why is self-pity a subtle sin? I'll tell you why. Because somehow it feels like you're justified in feeling that way. When you get through the door and you've been away for a weekend and you've worked hard, the truth is you have worked hard and you are tired. And in a perfect world, yes, you do deserve to sit down with a cup of tea. But that's not reality, is it? And so what happens is it's subtle because you start to feel justified. You were hurt. You were rejected. You were overlooked. That is the truth. And so you start to become more and more self-righteous with it. I can feel this way. I'm allowed to feel sorry for myself. I'm allowed to live in this state of self-pity. And you can see it as we see in Psalm 73. Let's look at verse 13. We see it. He starts to say, doesn't he, in verse 13, Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. Asaph is saying... Did I keep my heart pure for that? It's justifiable somehow. This situation, I mean, it's justifiable. You, if you understood what my situation was like, you would really feel like that. I've got every right to feel sorry for myself. God, why don't you sort it out? We feel entitled. We feel like we deserve things. And you start to look for comfort 
to somehow take away your sorrow. You're trying to find an avenue for escape for the sense of self-pity. It's subtle. That's the first point, it's subtle. The second is this. Self-pity is a mother sin. A mother sin. Well, what do I mean by that? What's a mother sin? Well, it's this. Self-pity is a sin that gives birth to other sin. If you house self-pity, if you allow self-pity a place in your life, it will give birth to all kinds of other sin. How many of us, when we feel that somebody else has wronged us, right, let's be truthful now, how many of us, when we feel someone else has wronged us, have been very tempted, and many of us have given into that temptation, to go and find somebody else who also knows that person and to gossip? Because do you know what? If they've hurt me, I'm going to pull them down to this level. I'm going to make other people feel badly about them. Or just in my own mind, I'm going to gossip them, I'm going to slander them. Because I feel sorry for myself, and because I'm living in that place of self-pity, it gives birth to gossip and to slander. How many of us, when we feel, when we live in this place of self-pity, get greedy? If you've not got, I've not got very much. If you didn't understand how poor I was or how difficult things were, therefore all of this stuff, that's mine. Greed. Everything, I'm going to keep it. It's mine. And what's the heart of the Lord? To be generous. To give away. The issue, what about the issue of pornography? Why is it so many men struggle with pornography? Because somehow they feel that in their life they've not got the entitlement that they should have had. They feel sorry for themselves. They self-pity. And so what do they do? They look for a little bit of excitement. They look for a way out. Self-pity is a mother sin. If you allow it space in your life, it will give birth to all kinds of other sin. Sin that really will damage and affect and change not just you, but the people around you. You need to deal with self-pity. So that's the, fir- the first one, was that self-pity is subtle. The second is that it's a mother sin. The third is this, self-pity leads to deception. Self-pity leads to deception. You know, we all heard the verse, I mean, Jeremiah uh, chapter 7, 17, verse 9, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. You know, the longer you live in self-pity, what, do you know what's happening? The way that you're seeing the world, your reality is slowly, slowly, slowly shifting. And so you no longer see the world as it really is, you see it through the lens of your self-pity. And reality starts to become distorted. And you can wholeheartedly believe, why do people do some terrible things to other people when they believe it's justified? And it's never, everyone's looking for out something, that's crazy, how can you talk to somebody like that? Well, if you knew what I'd been through, if you knew what they, reality, doesn't it? Self-pity leads to deception. We had a very, very tragic incident uh, in Eltham recently uh, where one of the church leaders in Eltham has uh, left his wife, had an affair and left his wife. Tragic. Why is it that somebody who for many years knew the Lord, for many years faithfully served God, served the church, how is it somebody like that? can just leave it all, leave his family, got two teenage kids, wife who loves the Lord, just walked out a little. How can that happen? Now, I, I, 
I know him and I don't, I don't know the situation all that well, but how about, so often you hear these kind of things, nobody understands my pressures. Nobody else seems to understand how lonely I am. I need this kind of unconditional acceptance from another woman. I've borne the, you know, the pressure of everybody else's burdens. And so what happens? You live in that place of self-pity, you become deceived. You start to think that an alternative option is going to be better for you. Your, your, your view of reality becomes distorted. Does this, this make sense? This man has obviously lost his ministry, he's lost his family, because he allowed self-pity to lead him into a place of deception. So that's the third one, deception. This is the last one. Self-pity becomes a habit. Self-pity becomes a habit. What do I mean by that? Well, if you, you know, we all have moments when we feel sorry for ourselves, right? So taking the example of when I walked through the door after having been away for a weekend, right? Now, that can be a moment. You feel a bit sorry for yourself. You say, no, I feel sorry for myself. You might carry on and do the chores, and then you get over it and you move on. Right, we all have that. But if I allow that to keep taking a place in my life, over time that becomes a habit. And what happens to a habit? A habit becomes an identity. A habit becomes an identity over time. So you just, that's where you go, you default. Anything goes wrong, oh, it's because if you just knew how difficult my life was. And so what happens over time? That becomes who you are. So if you are the person that's never dealt with failure in sin, what happens is you, think you keep going there, it's a habit, you keep going there until eventually you believe such a lie about yourself. You believe that you're a failure. You believe that you'll never be anything else. You believe that that's who you are. That becomes your identity. Do you see where I've gone? Self-pity, habit, identity, and that's how you live. And so many people live, I was... We, talking to somebody this week and they have been struggling with the same issue for nearly 40 years. 40 years. You telling me that God can't deliver someone in 40 years? No, absolutely not. But the truth is that's who they believe they are. And they cannot break out because they've allowed self-pity to become such a place in their life. Self-pity is a spiritual deadener. It will choke your faith, it will drain your hope, it will kill your joy. It will smother your love, it will fuel your anger, and it will rob any desire you have to serve other people. Self-pity is something we've got to get a grip on. You've got to get a grip on it in your life. So what is the antidote then? How do we deal with self-pity? How do we break the cycle of self-pity in our lives? How do we change things that maybe have become habits to us? Well, this week, in terms of my preparation, as I was thinking about it, I, I went on to um, uh, YouTube, as you do, and I listened to some people speak about self-pity. And <clears throat> they said some very good things about self-pity, more interesting than no doubt I have done, um, in terms of explaining it. But this was the bit I really struggled with. When they came to talk about what you can do to break out of self-pity, they said things like, <clears throat> do what makes you happy. Sleep more. Enjoy being with your family. Believe you are a winner. Trust in, just trust in the Lord that he's got great purposes and plans for your life. Yeah? Sounds good, doesn't it? Let me just tell you right now. Those things help. Believe me, I feel less likely to self-pity when I've had plenty of sleep. Right? And if I'm doing things that I enjoy on a regular basis, right, that does indeed help me to feel positive about myself. However, 
Let me tell you that that will not deal with the issue of self-pity in your life. Getting more sleep will not help you overcome the problem of self-pity in your life. Trying to believe that you are a winner, right, it sounds very good, but it won't deal with the underlying problem. It won't deal with the issues. And this is where we need to come back to Jesus. The only answer for dealing with the issue of self-pity in your life is to come back to Jesus. So let's pick up again Psalm 73 and verse 17. What does it say in verse 17, Patrick? Then I went into the sanctuary of God. It's only he was in this place. It's not fair. It's not fair. Why have I bothered keeping myself pure? Why have I cared? Why have I made all this effort? What's the point? I've almost given up on the whole thing. And what does he do? Then he comes back to God. Then I went into your sanctuary, O God. And finally, I understood. Finally, I understood. Truly, you put them on a slippery path. You send them sliding over the hill of destruction. And in instant they're destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. When you arise, O Lord, you will laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. And this is it, verse 21, 22. I realised my heart was bitter. I realised I'd allowed self-pity and complaining and upset about the world as it is to make me bitter. And I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant, I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. You see, he comes before God. He comes before God and realises that in the presence of God, that everything changes, that his view changes. Do you remember I talked about the distortion of reality? It's like his, re- his reality tunes back into God's reality. And suddenly he sees the world as it truly is. We need to come back this morning into a place of reality where we see Jesus Christ again. Where we realise what Jesus Christ has done for us. And I want us just to consider Jesus just for a moment. You know, Jesus was God, it says, John 1, doesn't it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Before the beginning of the world, Jesus existed. He was in heaven. What was he doing in heaven before the world was made? Everybody, the angels, were praising him and singing. He was in this place of glory and honour. Jesus was then the means. It says, it says by him and in him and through, thing, through him are all things made. Do you know that? Jesus was God's agent for making the world. He was so powerful that he made the world. And it's just, it, this is an interesting thought. I'll leave you, I mean, some of you have heard this before. By him, all things hold together. The world is being held together. You know, you know those, I'm not a scientist, but you know, they're not, I mean, Hannah's a scientist, maybe she should be answering this. But there's a question, what is it that holds atoms together? What is it that the very core of things holds things together? Perhaps it's Jesus. In fact, I'm pretty certain it's Jesus. Jesus holds all things together. You know, he just made everything and it was perfect and he was in heaven and he was in glory and he was praising. And what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do when he realised that we'd, make a total, we'd made a total mess of this world? Well, first of all, he laid down his raw robes and all his glory and he came and he lived in a manger. He was born in a manger and he was into a poor family where there was controversy surrounding him. 
King of kings, Lord of lords, created the entire universe, came down and humbled himself and put himself in a position of being so low. What happened for the next 30 years? He was completely and utterly overlooked. Nobody in 30 years had figured out that this was the Son of God. People just overlooked him. No, who was he? No one really knew. I mean, they liked him, he was a nice guy, but nobody was walking around when he was 20 going, oh, this is, this is the Son of God. It was only at 30, and then suddenly everyone turned around and, and you read it in the Gospels, and they're like, who is this guy? This used to be the, the carpenter from down the road. 30 years he was overlooked. And then what do we know of Jesus? He was, re- he was rejected, he was despised, he was trampled upon. And why? Why was Jesus rejected, despised, trampled upon so that he might present the world holy to God again through his death. He, he humbled himself, it says in the word, even to the point of death. Do you, can I say, we have heard that, haven't we? How many times have you heard Jesus died for your sins? How many times have you heard that? 100, 200, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000 times? This morning, is it real in our hearts? Have we got it in our hearts to realise that even though we, some we think, oh, we've been terribly wronged, Jesus was the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he came down and he gave it all up for us. Is that real in our hearts this morning? Because when you see things in the light of that, suddenly you realise that your self-pity has no place whatsoever. Because let me tell you this, God's purpose in life is this you know we often how many of you listen to have ever listened to a sermon on YouTube about your destiny anyone listen to a sermon on YouTube about your destiny right anyone that likes a bit of T.D. Jakes Pat loves it a bit of T.D. Jakes you are going to have this destiny yeah God's got great purposes for your life God's going to do great things God's going to use you to change the world yeah right? and I'm sure Pat preaches that every week when he gets up yeah alright you may be sitting there thinking, what's the point in my life? What's, the, what's my destiny? What's the aim? Why am I here? Let me tell you, all right, you do not have, your destiny is not to change the world. That might be a bit of an unpopular thing to say at this time. Right? We love that, that idea. Your destiny is this, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This is the destiny of your life, that God wants to make you like Jesus. That is the destiny of your life. You may never accomplish anything that anyone will ever take any notice of. Right? But God wants to make you like Jesus because Jesus is the one with all the glory and all the honour. And you know, the lower down Jesus went, the more honour and the more glory he had. And you know, we want to be like Jesus. Hands up who wants to be... Well, don't put your hands up. That's the teacher thing to do. Hands up who wants to be like Jesus. Everyone's going to put their hand up. I want to be like Jesus. Do we, who wants to be like Jesus as a person to love? Oh man, I want to love like Jesus. Yeah. I want to love like Jesus. Mm, who wants to be just you know, patient like Jesus? Yeah. I want to be patient like Jesus. Mm. Who wants to have power like Jesus? Yes, I'd love to have some power like Jesus, heal the sick, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was Jesus at his greatest point? Jesus' greatest point was the lamb slain for the sins of the world. 
That's the point. Do you know what it says in Revelation chapter 4? I think it's chapter 4 or 5. What do they all worship? They worship the Lamb. They worship the Lamb. They worship the one that was slain. That was Jesus at the pinnacle. That was Jesus at his moment of absolute glory. It wasn't all of the other stuff he'd done. It was the fact that he laid down his life. So if you want to be like Jesus, you have to come to the place of being prepared to die with Jesus. To suffer like Jesus. To be trampled on like Jesus. To be rejected like Jesus. To be despised like Jesus. To be overlooked like Jesus. To be ignored. To be rejected. You know, we don't like that message very much. You know, we want to hear that I can be a winner. I've just got to believe I'm a winner message. That would be much more popular. Maybe you'd all be buying me coffee at the end if I said that. Nobody wants to hear the message, whether we, we might pretend we do, but nobody really wants to hear the message. The only way to be like Jesus is to come and die and lay it all down again. You want to break the habit of self-pity in your life? You want to break the, the sense of self-pity giving place to others in your life? There is only one way, and that is through the cross of Jesus Christ. That is through coming back to the place where you say, Lord, I want to be like you, and if that means that I'm trampled on, if that means that I'm despised, if that means I'm rejected, then I will accept that. You know, I've been really struggling with this over the last couple of months. Because sometimes... You know, in leadership, you want to make great, you know, I'm involved, I lead the church in Elton, and um, along with John and, and Daniel. And I've been really struggling to know my place. And I've begun to think to myself, oh, you know, it's just not, it's not working, you know, I'm just struggling to know what I should be doing. What should I be doing? I, I need to, you know, I should just be doing more, I should be, you know... Uh, and the Lord has challenged me again and said this. you just got to lay your life down. You just have to be who I've made you to be in that place. It's not about your glory. It doesn't matter if people overlook you. It doesn't matter if you don't know what you're meant to be doing. It doesn't matter if other people ignore you. This is it. Jesus is the centrepiece of history. He is the focus of heaven and one day everyone will bow down and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And you want to be like him? Well, you've got to identify with Christ in his suffering and his death. And that is the antidote to self-pity. And so we see it at the end of this psalm and I'll con conclude with this. It says in verse 23, Yet, despite all of my failings, when I came back to you, Asaph says this, Yet, I still belong to you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, you lead me into your glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail, my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. I desire you. Is that your heart this morning? Do you desire God more than anything else? Has truth, the truth of this become dull in your heart? We're going to stand and we're going to respond to the Lord. And as I pray, I just encourage you, if you know that self-pity has had a place in your life that has been wrong, where you've been just allowing yourself to dwell on how you know, tough life has been for you, then the Lord wants to come and he wants to show you Jesus again. He wants to lift up Jesus in your mind and in your heart. He wants to, you to see the risen Lamb. The one who laid down his life for you and realised that you when, you, when Jesus said come, he said you give up your life for my life. And that means, and there's a verse which I didn't quote, which I should have done. 
It says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Amen. Let's stand, shall we? And if it's in your heart this morning, you know that you need to respond to the Lord, that God has been speaking to you this morning. I want you just in your heart to lift up Jesus, to look at Jesus, to repent of your, your selfishness and your self-indulgence, your self-pity, and you come and you just say, Lord, I just am prepared to take whatever you give me. Whatever life you give me, whatever situation you give is an opportunity for you to make me more like you. Hallelujah, Jesus. Thank you that you are working this out in my life, Lord. That I cannot stand here and say today, Lord, that I have mastered self-pity. But I do know this, Lord, that you keep reminding me over and over again that my life is not my own. It was bought at a very costly price. It was bought at your blood, by your blood, and, and, giving you, and you gave your life for me, for us. Lord, and so, Lord, I say, Lord, I declare it again, Lord, whatever you have for me, make me like you, Jesus. Lord, I don't mind if I get overlooked. I don't mind if people reject me. I don't mind if people have abused me or have been rude to me or unkind to me. I don't mind if I haven't, Lord, got loads of this or loads of that, Lord. That doesn't matter. All I want, Lord, is you. Lord, as Asaph said at the end of this psalm, all I desire is you. You are the desire of my heart. Lord, may you stir up in these people this morning that desire for Jesus, that desire to be like Jesus, that desire to want him above everything else, that desire to put him above everything else. Lord, we pray against self-pity and the lies, Lord, that we deserve this and we deserve that. May you come this morning and may you break it, Lord, in people's hearts this morning. Lord, if anybody's responding to you in their heart this morning and saying, Lord, I need you to come and deal with this, may you come and deal with it, Lord. May you come and touch, Lord, the inward place of people this morning. Break habits that may have existed for many, many years. Lord, we pray you would break the lies of the devil, Lord, which say that we're not valuable, we're not worth anything, we can never change. That's not true. You can change in the name of Jesus. You can be different. You can overcome because Christ has overcome and as you identify with Christ, so you become like him. And Christ has overcome even the grave. Hallelujah. Amen, Lord. We just pray you would move, Lord, in this place. We pray for this church. Lord, it would be a place, Lord, where you are glorified and you are lifted up, Jesus. Lord, we know that when you are lifted up, Lord, you will draw all men to yourself. Lord, and one day every knee will bow. We pray that the message and the witness of this place will be you, Jesus. Will be Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords. We pray that there will be breakthrough in this place. We pray for the people in this community. Lord, we pray that, Lord, those that are broken hearted, Lord, those that have been rejected, those that have been abused, would come to this place and find that Jesus Christ is the answer. Lord, we pray that you would anoint, Lord, the people amongst in this room to believe that you can use them. Lord, we're all just vessels of your grace, Lord. Lord, weak vessels, but we know this, that as we become, as we lay down our lives, so you pick it up. Lord, as we become like you, we believe that you fill us with power. Lord, you fill us with authority. You fill us with goodness. You fill us with love. 